Well, we are continuing in our series through the book of Exodus. And uh, we have arrived at the second great event of the book. Uh, The first great and significant event uh, in the book of Exodus was Israel being delivered from slavery uh, through the Passover and the crossing of the Red Sea. The second major event in Exodus begins in chapter 9, where God's people are gathered at Mount Sinai. And they are receiving the covenant of God. They are receiving the law, the Ten Commandments of God. And so these are the two mountaintops of the book of Exodus. Exodus, uh, Deliverance and covenant. Deliverance and covenant. Um, So if you have your Bibles, we're going to turn to our passage. Initially, I was going to read all 25 verses of the chapter. And then I realized that's just too much. That's just, I love the public reading of scripture. uh, But we're going to chop Uh, this passage up into multiple readings. Uh, But if you have your Bibles, please turn to Exodus chapter 19, uh, and I'll be reading from verses 1 to 9. Verses 1 to 9. And trusting that you're there, may God bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word. On the third moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant, You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported uh, reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. Amen. The word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, I want to begin by saying that this is just an incredible, incredible passage. Uh, Preparing the message this week was both really invigorating and awfully challenging. Because there's so much going on here in Exodus chapter 19. I could have preached, and maybe I should have preached, three separate messages from this passage. But I'm going to do my best and and pack it all in one today. Now Israel has been traveling through the wilderness for about three months. That's the three moons uh, since they crossed the Red Sea. It's been a difficult journey filled with conflict, fighting, and weariness. But they finally arrived at Mount Sinai. The place that God had destined them to be. In Genesis chapter 3, God told Moses, When you depart from Egypt, you will gather at this mountain to worship me. God is making good on that promise. The Israelites have now gathered at Mount Sinai to worship and meet the Lord. And in our passage today, Moses goes up to the mountain 
to meet God three separate times. In fact, throughout this entire Sinai narrative, as we look at chapters 19 to 24, Moses goes up and down Mount Sinai seven different times. Seven different times, okay? So in our passage, we're going to look at three, but over this whole narrative, he goes down seven times, seven ascents, to go and meet the Lord and to serve as his mouthpiece and as his prophet. That's, that's a lot of hiking, okay? This is not just a hill. This is not just a slope, right? It is an entire mountain that Moses ascends to meet the Lord. And so just word of encouragement, exhortation, parents, when you drop off your kids down at the education department and have second thoughts about coming all the way back up, you're like, maybe I should just park at the cafeteria and just take a breather today. Um, would you remember Moses? Remember Moses who made the hike for the Lord. Remember Moses as he made the hike for his people. You can make the hike up our campus. Um, but as we unpack this text, we're going to look at uh, three things. Uh, first, the promise of God's covenant. Second, the stipulations of God's covenant. And finally, the fulfillment of God's covenant. So the promise, the stipulations, and the fulfillment of the covenant. Now, what is a covenant? Right? What is a covenant? Uh, it's an old, archaic word. We don't use it very often anymore. But a covenant is like a contract, but with greater relational depth. Like a contract, but with more intimacy. It involves two parties where promises are made. Okay, promises are made to each other. But stipulations are also given. There are conditions to these covenants. And then there are blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. Blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. And in the Bible, covenants describe the way in which God relates with his people. Okay? He always relates to us in the Old and New Testament through this, this, this structure and this dynamic of covenant. Okay? The first covenant was made in the Garden of Eden. When God told Adam, obey and you will live, disobey and you will surely die. That was an agreement. That was a covenant that God made with Adam. And we all know how that unfortunately turned out. And throughout the Old Testament, God made covenants with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, with David. And today we're, going, we're, we're looking at the beginning and the basis of what is known as the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant. And as Israel encamped at the base of Mount Sinai, Moses, he makes his first ascend to God. And God gives Moses the essence, the beginning of the Mosaic Covenant. His first message in verse 4, he says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. Do you hear the covenantal language, the promise, the stipulations, the blessings? Now, most of us know Exodus yeah, 19 to 24 as the Mosaic Covenant. And although that is correct, we need to be careful not to divorce the covenants from one another. Okay? There are certain theological um, um, tribes that see the covenants as separate and distinct. 
that see the covenants as against one another or or disagreeing and in conflict at times with each other. But I don't want us to fall into that interpretation of the covenants. The covenant of Moses is not against and utterly distinct from the covenant of Abraham. Even more so, the covenant of Moses is not annulled by the new covenant established by Jesus Christ. Instead, we see progressive fulfillment in all of the covenants. From Genesis all the way through the scriptures, there is what's called progressive fulfilling of these covenants. There are really only two main covenants in the Bible. And they are known as the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. The covenant of works and covenant of grace. The covenant of works was given to Adam in Eden. Obey and you will live. Disobey and you will die. It was all based on the obedience of Adam. If he would obey, we would all be in Eden right now. Right? No sin, no death, no disease, no fall. But because he failed and broke the covenant of works, here we are today. When we get to heaven, we got a lot of things to say to Adam. Right? We'll say thank you. And, uh, and then next we have the covenant of grace. And all of the covenants that God makes with his people post-Eden are under this category, under this umbrella of covenant of grace. And so Sinai is not a new covenant God is making with Moses and Israel. Rather, it is a continuation of the covenant of grace. It is a partial fulfillment of the covenant God made with Abraham. So if you remember Exodus chapter 2, the whole basis of the Exodus is God hearing the groaning of the Hebrews under slavery. He hears their cries. He sees their affliction and his suffering. And then he remembers his covenant with Abraham. Israel was in slavery. They were crying out to the Lord. And God didn't just respond out of compassion. He didn't just respond out of charity or pity for this poor enslaved people group. He responded out of covenant faithfulness. So church, always remember the Mosaic Mosaic covenant is not a covenant of works. It's actually a covenant of grace. And we see this in our passage today. Today, if there's one thing you take away from the message, I hope it's this. The promise of God precedes the performance of his people. The promise of God precedes the performance of his people. Before Israel did anything to merit their salvation, God tells them, he bore them on eagles' wings. He brought them to himself. And this eagle, the eagle symbolized both protection and power. Protection and power. And like the eagle, the Lord has protected his people And he's fought their enemies for them. Do you remember the plagues of Egypt? The ten plagues that God laid and levied against Pharaoh and the Egyptians. None of those plagues afflicted the Hebrews. Though they were in Egypt, residing in Goshen, they were all protected. The Hebrews were protected from all of those plagues. God provided manna and water for them in the wilderness despite their grumbling. Despite their complaining, God was providing for his people. He led them as a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. God fought for his people by defeating Pharaoh and the Egyptian army. And he continued to fight for his people as he defeated the Amalekites 
all because he is a faithful and gracious covenantal God. In all nations, the same is true for us. None of us are saved because we deserved it. None of us performed good enough deeds to merit the favor and grace of God. And so this is what it means for God's election. This is what it means for God's covenant to be unconditional. It's not this, no matter what, I'm going to love you and save you. It's not like a Backstreet Boys song, okay? Uh, The meaning of unconditional election and the unconditional aspects of God's covenant is this. None of the conditions necessary for salvation are satisfied in us, okay? None of the conditions necessary to merit God's favor, merit his blessing, merit his deliverance are satisfied in us. It is wholly satisfied in him. The basis of our deliverance is his mysterious love and his mighty works that are sufficient for us. The book of Deuteronomy is the retelling of the law. And it's actually the renewal of Israel's covenant with God. It's the end, the final book of the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. And in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7, Moses reminds Israel of this unconditional nature of the covenant. How Israel didn't deserve, and this is what he says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Do you see that? It's not because Israel was mighty or numerous, right? Or really, really needed it. Why were they saved? Why were they chosen? It's because of God's divine and mysterious love. And it's because he was being faithful to the oath that he made to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So why has God chosen you? Why has God shown mercy and grace to you? It is for the same reason. He's not just being faithful to you. He's not just being good to you because you went to USC, the finest school in the West Coast, fight on, right? It's not because you're doing your quiet times or you're paying your taxes or you're a good neighbor. God has saved you and chosen you and showed favor upon you because he is being faithful to the promise he made to our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is faithful to the work of his son, Jesus Christ, who redeemed us and purchased us by his bloodshed work. God is being faithful to Christ as he saves and blesses us. And because of this gracious work of God, he deserves obedience. He absolutely deserves obedience. In fact, he requires it. And this is where we actually see the the conditional aspects of the covenant. The covenant of God is both unconditional and conditional. And so he says, it's not just I'm going to love you no matter what. He actually says, you must now obey because I have saved you, because I have brought you to myself. He requires obedience. And if Israel obeys, there are blessings that will follow. They will be his treasured possession. 
They will be his kingdom of priests. They will be a holy nation. And church, I want you to note the order. Obedience to the laws of God. They are not a ladder we climb unto salvation. Okay, They're not a ladder we climb. Obedience to the laws of God is a result of God's salvation. A result of God's saving and gracious work in our lives. Okay? It's not a ladder we climb. It's our response. It's a result of grace. Let me give a, a really simple example of this in our lives or in my life. Uh, my wife, Alice, uh, she didn't marry me because I take out the trash or pay our bills. She didn't marry me because I walk the dog or pick up our dry cleaning or do any of the obligations or duties that, that a faithful, helpful, responsible husband performs. But because I am married, because I am in a covenantal relationship to her, I do all of those things. Our promise, okay, our commitment to love one another and belong to one another precedes performance. But then it also afterwards requires performance. Okay? Love and covenant precedes performance. But after that, to engage and experience healthy, intimate covenant relationship, we must obey. We must fulfill our responsibilities and our duties as members of this covenant. So this doesn't mean obedience doesn't matter. It surely and absolutely does. Obedience is the way we enjoy the benefits of a covenant. Husbands and wives. Isn't obedience one of the keys for a healthy, harmonious, pleasant marriage? Okay. Obedience is the means by which I honor my commitment to my wife, Alice. Ask any married man here. Okay, there are blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience, right? And sometimes literal cursing when there's disobedience. And I do everything I can to avoid the curse of Alice. The fury is written. No, I'm just kidding. She's awesome. She's awesome. Yeah, she's awesome. So the first part of the covenant is what God has done for Israel. The second part of this covenant is what Israel must do in response. Okay. The third part of this covenant is the blessing that will come from obedience. And this blessing is beautiful. If you obey, if you abide in my word, the Lord says you will be my treasured possession among all peoples. The earth is the Lord's. All people belong to him. But God says, I will show you, Israel, a particular love, a special love, a holy love. In the Hebrew, it literally means personal property. Okay, Personal property. Israel, you will be my personal property. He will personally treasure those who obey him. So friends, this means that although our obedience can never save us, our obedience will never justify us or make us right with God, obedience has a different role, a specific role. It's the pathway to intimacy with God. When you obey the Lord, when you take him at his word and live according to his word, that is a pathway to intimacy. It has a pathway for you and I to honor him and glorify him. He delights in us as we obey his voice and keep his covenant. Not only do God's people enjoy this personal treasured affection from our Lord, we also then receive a holy commission. 
we also receive a beautiful identity as a kingdom of priests and as a holy nation. Why a kingdom of priests, guys? I'm sure that when I read this, you thought of the first Peter passage where we in the church are called a priesthood of all believers. But I just want to pause and ask, what does that mean? And why would God tell Israel, I want you to be a kingdom of priests? First, it's so that there might be mutual edification, ministry, and service. That the people of God would serve one another. That the people of God would minister to one another. But I want to say this. There's much more to the kingdom of priests, to the priesthood of all believers, than just us in the church as Christians saying, oh, let's just minister to each other. Let's carry one another's burdens. Let's love one another and pray for one another. No. He wants a kingdom of priests to be ministers to all of the nations. In the Old Testament, there is only one nation that knows the true and living God, and it is Israel. And God sees all of the other nations who are lost in idolatry, all of the other nations who are bowing down towards false gods, and he knows that these nations need priests. These nations need messengers. These nations need missionaries. And so his greater, bigger vision, his ultimate vision, is to, through Israel... The nation of Israel that he makes great, that he makes beautiful, that he makes mighty. He wants Israel to be a kingdom of priests and minister to all of the nations. That's God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. That was his heart. That is his intent. And the same is true for us. We are a priesthood of believers, not only for one another's sake, that is absolutely essential, but for this world. Your community needs priests. Your workplaces need priests. Your college campuses needs priests to tell them who Christ is. How they may receive the joy of salvation, not by works, but by grace through faith. This is the heart and purpose of God. Israel is not only uniquely loved by God, they are uniquely tasked by God to mediate the saving knowledge of God to all of the nations. This is the first place in the Bible where uh, God actually calls Israel a nation. Okay? He calls Israel a nation. In Genesis, God only promises Abraham that his offspring will become a great nation. So any language of Israel as a nation in Genesis, it's all just future prophecy, future promise. But here at Mount Sinai, God is making the nationhood of Israel a reality. What the Mosaic Covenant does with all of its laws, all of its stipulations, is provide Israel its constitution. We have a constitution here in the U.S., right? And and, 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 and it, it, it serves to regulate us. And it sets us apart from other nations because we say we will live under these rules, these principles, and these precepts. The same is true for Israel. God gives them the law as their constitution. As they are becoming the nation of God, God gives them identity markers and standards to set his people apart from the rest of the nations. So Moses tells this first message to Israel. This is the covenant that God wants to make with us. And they respond in verse 8. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. 
What a great response. All that the Lord has said, all that the Lord has commanded, we will do. Moses goes up a second time to relay that message to God. He says, hey God, Israel says, okay, whatever you say, they will do. They agree with your word and those stipulations. And then God responds with a second incredible statement. Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. What is the significance of this second word that God gives to Moses? It means that God is going to provide a sign for his covenant. Okay. Covenants are not just made with words. They are then, they are then secured, right? almost notarized with signs and seals. And God says, you know what? I'm going to give you a covenant sign. I'm going to show up as a thick cloud. And I'm going to speak in such a way that all of my people may hear my voice and believe you forever, Moses, that you are my messenger, that you are my prophet. That's such an amazing thing. Because it's one thing for Moses to disappear into the mountains, talk to God, and come back. I'm sure there were some Israelites who were like, man, who are you really talking to? Right? I mean, that's kind of like the story of Joseph Smith and the Mormons, right? He who would just disappear and come back with tablets and say he met an angel, right? Well, God says, that's not always going to be the case. I want my people to know my voice. I want my people to hear my words, my voice, my commands directly. And so he says, I will come to you in a thick cloud and they will hear when we talk, when we converse, they will hear that conversation. And so there will be no doubt that Moses, you are my messenger, that I am your God and I am giving these decrees, these commandments, these promises to my people and they will believe forever. Second part of our message, the stipulations of the covenant. Before Moses, or before the Lord comes to his people, he tells Moses, get the people ready. Get the people ready. And so if you have your Bibles, let's turn back to our passage again. And we'll pick up at verse, uh, the second half of verse 9. Okay? So the Lord says to Moses, behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people and you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. Okay, stipulations of the covenant, right? Curse for disobedience right there. No hand shall touch him but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. Amen, amen. He tells the people of Israel, get ready. The Lord is coming. In three days. And God commands Moses, consecrate the people. What does this mean? It means to make holy. To consecrate means to set apart church as we come for worship, 
regularly on the Sabbath, on this Lord's day, we are setting apart, right? This day for the Lord, for worship. There's so many other things that we could be doing, right? Sleeping in, relaxing, going out, having brunch, right? But we set apart this day. We consecrate it for the Lord. God says, Moses, consecrate the people. So before Israel meets their holy God, they must be prepared. Israel swore to the Lord, all you say, we will do. So the Lord speaks and gives them three commands. And each command is a reminder of the holiness of God. This is no casual encounter among friends. Right? Your friend may walk in and you just give them a quick nod. It doesn't matter what you're wearing and what they're wearing. Amongst casual friends, it's all good. This is nothing of the sorts. Israel is about to meet their maker. Israel is about to meet their deliverer. And God says, you must prepare. You must prepare. First, God says, wash your clothes. Right? Wash your clothes. This is symbolic of cleansing and purification. Okay. It's not that the wash, it's not that God's like dirty clothes or you're rejected, right? Um, it's, it's a symbol. It's a symbol of the importance of purification and the importance of cleansing. Second, he tells them, stay away from the mountain. Okay. I'm going to come down and descend on Mount Sinai. You may not touch it. You may not approach it lest you die. And this requirement keeps God's holiness at the forefront of their minds. Yes, the Lord is like an eagle who protects her young and provides for her young. Yes, the Lord is tender and merciful and gracious, but he is still holy. He's still holy and righteous and transcendent. And so this second command is to remind Israel, never forget that God is holy. Even to the people of God, God's treasured possession, the Lord is unapproachable. He is awesome and he is dreadful. So they had to keep themselves. They had to keep their children. Right? Imagine if you have wandering children, you've got to keep them away from the mountain of the Lord. They had to keep their flocks, their animals, constantly away from the mountain day and night in fear and reverence of the Lord. God, all that you command, we will do. God says, all right, then do this. Follow this. Remember my holiness. Obey this command. Finally, he tells them to abstain from intercourse until the third day. The point is not that sex is unholy. It's not that sex is impure. It is surely and absolutely a gift from God. But this command reminds the people, deny yourselves from carnal pleasure for this intentional season and give yourselves wholly, body and soul, to the focus, the arrival, the preparation of God. Um, when I do premarital counseling in our introduction uh, of the book that, that we go through, this is one of the commitments that we make. That during your engagement, during our premarital counseling, as we approach that wedding day, that wedding day that is supposed to symbolize Christ's wedding with his church, that union, that gospel message, I ask every couple, right, would you practice and observe and guard your purity? Even if there's been sexual failure in the past, even if you have struggled with temptation in the past, now, as we are focused 
and we have our eyes and our hearts set on a wedding that is not just of this earth and following cultural patterns and practices, but we want it to be a reflection of the gospel and Jesus' pure, holy, radiant, beautiful marriage with his bridegroom, prepare, consecrate yourselves, set yourselves apart. This is why God says, for three days, abstain. For three days, abstain. Give me all of yourself. All of your devotion. I'm that important. I'm that important. What does this mean for us? What can we take from this passage? I believe that we actually get to see a full picture of faith in God. Within a covenant relationship. There are two ways we are called to express faith in the Lord. And the first is the way we normally associate faith. It's the inner response to God. It's an inner response of trust, of devotion, of agreement to the Lord. So when the Lord speaks to Israel, their response is, yes, Lord. We are committed. All that you say, we will do. We believe your promises. We desire them. We trust you. We give you our allegiance. But that's not all that faith is. Faith is not just lip service. Faith is not just inner devotion and desire for God. There's a second expression of faith that must necessarily follow for us to truly be faithful followers of God. And that's the outer response of obedience. You can't just say yes to God's promises. You actually have to obey. You can't just say yes to the Lord and sing songs to him. And pray prayers to him. You actually have to obey. And God requires this. Once again, Israel doesn't obey in order to belong. Israel obeys because they belong. And that's the order of the Christian life as well. We don't obey to get more of God's approval. Get salvation. To get righteousness. We obey because we already belong. We obey because we are sons and daughters. We have been adopted by and through the bloodshed work of Jesus Christ. But obedience and faith must be married to one another. They must be married to one another. Diedrich Bonhoeffer once said, All who truly believe obey, and all who obey truly believe. Okay. Those Those are the two aspects of faith. And that is the full expression of faith. Yes, Lord, in our hearts. And yes, Lord, with our lives and our actions. For those of us who are here today who claim to be Christian, I want to ask you, have you been obeying the Lord? Have you been obeying all that the Lord has commanded you? And if you haven't, Perhaps this is the reason why God feels distant to you. Perhaps this is the reason why your heart has grown cold. Perhaps this is the reason you have been maybe backsliding in your Christian faith and why you lack intimacy with God. It's not because you don't understand and it's not because you don't agree with the content and the message of the gospel. It's because you have not been obeying the Lord. You have been neglecting your obedience to God. And just as we see in this passage, obedience entails 
both doing and resisting, okay? That's obedience. It's doing and resisting. Israel actively washes their clothes and they actively resist. They don't touch the mountain. They don't touch their spouses. That is a picture, a dualistic vision of obedience. And so there are some of us here today, you are in rebellion and disobedience from God. Not because there's all of these spectacular outward activities that you're like, oh my gosh, if people knew, I'd be in big trouble. But it's because you've neglected the commands that God has given. Mercy and care towards the poor and the destitute. You've neglected prayers and the reading of scripture. You've you've neglected tithing and stewardship and generosity. You've neglected the honoring of your parents. You've neglected the fellowship and the service here in the body of Christ. And because you have failed to obey positively the commands of God, God's distant. There's no intimacy. There's coldness in your relationship. And for others, you've been disobeying. And you've been following the desires of your flesh. You've been following the examples and the idols of this world whether it's sexual impurity, whether it's anger, pride, cynicism. You've been acting out against your family members. You've been having it against your enemies and guilty of gossip and slander and judgment. And because of that sin, you're missing out in intimacy with the Lord. You're not obeying God. But both, both are costly. Both are painful Both are dangerous in our relationship to the Lord. If we fail to obey positively, if we fail to resist sin, we will not be the treasured possessions of God. We will not be delightful unto the Lord or glorifying or honoring to him. We will not have the privilege of hearing his voice, sensing his presence in our lives. Why does holiness and obedience matter? First, for your relationship with God. And second, for the sake of mission. We are called to be holy and set apart, not for the sake of self-righteousness. Okay, I, I really hope that in our church here at All Nations, we don't buy into Christian exceptionalism. Okay? We hear that message all the time. Why should you study hard? Why should you do well? Why should you perform good works? It's like, because you need to be a good witness. And there's this idea that, that Christians need to be the best at everything for the glory of God. Okay? I do believe in excellence, but we need to be careful not to buy into Christian exceptionalism. As if when we win at work and win at school, win at morality, win in all the categories of life that seem to matter for us, then we'll be able to say, it's because I'm Christian. Don't you want to be one, right? I'm winning in so many ways. I'm flourishing in so many ways of life. Look at me. And then let me tell you about Jesus. Don't you want to be like this? That is Christian exceptionalism. And that is not a godly biblical motive for obedience and holiness. Remember what he has called us to be. A kingdom of priests. A priesthood of all believers. The reason why we say no to the world. 
The reason why we must obey the Lord and be set apart and consecrated from the world is not so that we can judge the world and say we're so much better than the rest of the world who are lost in darkness, who are following idols. No, the reason why we must be set apart from the world is so that we can be holy as a nation unto the world. So that we can be salt and light unto the world and effectively minister the love and grace and truth of God unto the world. If we are like the world, we cannot be a holy nation for God in the world. Finally, we see the fulfillment of the covenant. The passage closes with this third meeting between Moses and God. And and for the sake of uh, integrity, I'm going to read our final verses. Verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. And the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called to Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord and look and and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai for you yourself warned us saying, set limits and around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told him and told them. Our passage closes with a third meeting between Moses and God. And God arrives in this terrifying theophany of fire and thunder. God reminds Moses, don't let the people come any closer. They have to stop at the foot of the mountain. Moses is a little confused and he's probably a little frustrated. And so he actually tells God, yeah, you already said that. Okay. I mean, it's the third day and they've all been waiting to go and approach and meet God and they see the cloud descending on Mount Sinai. I'm sure Moses is like, all right, get ready. Let's go up the mountain. And God's like, stop right there. You've come far enough. I'm sure the Israelites were like, what? Moses was like, what? Yes, he's frustrated. And so he talks back to God. Like I've said throughout this passage, no one talks back to God as much as Moses But even so, God reminds him again and again, you have to tell them to stay back. Don't let them break through out of curiosity, out of excitement. Don't let them rush the mountain to come and see me and meet me, lest they die and be consumed, lest I break out against them in holy judgment. And so Israel, at this point, they've heard God's voice. They've seen the fire and the cloud. 
They've trembled at his power and his thunder, but they cannot come any closer. And to be honest, I understand Moses' frustration. He may have wanted more for Israel. He may have wanted more for his people. He wanted them to, to hear and know God in the way he has. Right? I'm sure that's what he was expecting. Moses had that burning bush experience in the beginning of Exodus. Moses repeatedly has been going up the mountain, speaking with God as a man talks to a friend face to face. I'm sure Moses was like, why just me? Why can't the rest of your people know you in this awesome way? It seems like everything was building up to that. That kind of breakthrough, that kind of intimacy and relationship. But God set the boundary again. They got to move from around the mountain to the edge of the mountain, right? the base of the mountain. But this is as far as they are allowed to go. In the New Testament, the author of Hebrews reflects on this passage directly. And he writes in chapter 12, verses 18 to 24. It's a beautiful connection. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. They were terrified, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, the city of God, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word, than the blood of Abel. Friends, do you see the contrast? Do you see the comparison that the author of Hebrews is making for us? The Israelites trembled with fear. They were filled with dread. They couldn't go past the foot of the mountain. But you and I, because of Christ, you and I, because of the new covenant he has established, we, we get to come to Mount Zion. We get to enter the city of God, the new Jerusalem. We have been welcomed in. And this, again, is not a replacement of the Mosaic Covenant. It's a fulfilling of it. It's, a, it's an unveiling and a revealing of the covenants. This is what Christ offers you and I. What a great privilege. What a great honor. What a great gift it is that we are not stuck at the base of the mountain waiting for someone else to mediate communication, God's will, God's word, God's grace towards us, but we get to enter into the throne room of grace with confidence because of Jesus Christ. And that last phrase, verse 24, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant and of the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the, word, than the blood of Abel. Do you remember the story of Genesis? where Cain kills his brother Abel. What did Abel's blood cry out to God? It cried out for vengeance. It cried out for justice. It cried out for vindication. What does the blood of Jesus, and how does the blood of Jesus speak a better word than vengeance for us? Well, as Jesus Christ died on the cross, as he bled for us, 
his blood testified, it is finished. His blood cries out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the fulfillment of the covenant of grace for us. He secures for us the identity to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, the treasured possession of God. Because of Jesus Christ, God delights in you. Because of Jesus Christ, God welcomes you and accepts you. Friends, do you believe? Do you believe? If so, would you respond in worship? If so, would you respond in faith? If so, would you respond in obedience? And if so, would you respond remembering that this call, this truth, this gospel is not just for you. It's for the nations. We are a priesthood of all believers so that we can be messengers of the gospel unto the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for who you are and just the robust vision that you give us in Exodus 19 as a loving, caring eagle who protects us, who fights for us, but that you are also, you are also a dreadful cloud and a holy fire who consumes all. Lord, give us this vision of you. Help us to fear you and honor you in a way that you deserve. And yet, help us to approach you with confidence because of the finished and perfect work of Jesus Christ. May we hold that in balance, the friendship and fear of you. And as we do so, Lord, may we enjoy who you have made us to be as your sons and daughters, as a kingdom of priests. Help us to obey and live for your glory. Help us to have a genuine heart for the nations who are dying without you, who are in the darkness without you. May we not hold them in contempt. May we see them through your eyes and your heart. And may we be a nation of priests unto them for their life, for their salvation, for their entrance into your city, the city of Zion. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray.